good. That last kid, he's going places. I can tell he has great parents. I don't know who he is, but so good. Well, thanks for being here, sharing your Saturday with us. If you're online, we're glad you're here watching. Give us a shout out in the chat to let us know you're here. And um, just also want to give a shout out to Vanessa. Uh, June is year three on staff with us here at the City Life Church. So keeping us all straight. I'll move in the right direction. Hey, as we jump into, just to let you know, um, our notes for our sermon are always online. So through our website, citylifeva.com, you go to the sermons link. You can always download this as a PDF uh, the following week. And, uh, or you can just follow Cameron and Jennifer Muro on social media. Yeah, I know, right? They are our active note takers, so come on, it's good. Hey, has has anybody else ever noticed the kind of self-control that Jesus had to demonstrate to wait until 30 before he did anything? I mean, unless you're of the mindset that he didn't have all of the power that he demonstrated from age 30 to 33 from zero to 30, which I don't believe, I think he had it. I think the idea of the incarnation was from the beginning, was from conception. Can you imagine what it must have took for him to have all the wisdom and the knowledge that he had, which we know he had all of that too, at least the wisdom and the knowledge from the interaction they had as a young boy with the religious leaders at the temple. But he had the power to heal, to raise people from the dead, to deliver people from demonic oppression. He had power over nature, and yet the self-control that he must have had to hold all of that within. I mean, just how about when he was a kid, maybe? His family's walking down the road. There's a group of lepers that are coming at them, and Mary, being a good mother, turns around and says, don't touch anybody as they go by. And Jesus is looking around, and as no one's looking, he's just touching them, right? Healing them, everyone. Were there times he did the little Jedi wand when he wanted an extra helping of Fig Cobbler? Mother Mary, you will give me an extra helping. Did he misuse his power? If he didn't misuse it, which you know we didn't because he never sinned, did he really wait until he was 30 to bring that kind of power to the world? Because the same world that broke his heart at 30 was the same world that was breaking his heart at 10. The same world that broke his heart at 31 was the same world that was breaking his heart when he was 15, 16, 17, 20, 21. Now, I understand the history behind it, right? You, you couldn't be a rabbi officially in Jewish culture until you were 30 years old. I understand that. But he was the son of God, the savior of the world. He could have changed the rules if he had wanted, but he didn't. He waited. We know he waited in part because Mark gives us some insight into his family's response to him when he began to minister. Mark 3, 21. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. And listen to what Mark says, his own family. Mary's in this entourage, by the way. He's out of his mind, they said. Out of his mind! It's not as though that They had kept this secret together that Jesus was going to be able to do all of these incredible things, and they just couldn't wait for the moment that he burst onto the scene. We see here that his own family had no idea, even though 
God sent angels to reveal to Mary something incredible is going to happen. Even still, when he began to minister, she herself thought, my son has lost his ever-loving mind. Let's get him off the stage. Because he waited. He waited. He knew when he needed to wait, but he also knew when it was time to act. He knew when it was time to come out of hiding. He knew when God was calling him to step into the moment that was put in front of him. And I believe for some of you here right now, for some of you that are watching online, for some of you that might be watching this years down the road or listening years from now, I would say to you, it's time for you to take your stand. It's time for you to stop hiding. It's time for you to come out of the shadows, to take a stand against racism, against systems that continue to oppress people of color, and attitudes that degrade and belittle and demean marginalized people. 2020 is your year to stand up and find your voice. For whatever reason, you've been waiting. For, for, whatever, for whatever reason that you feel justified in not coming to the fight yet, what I would say to you, it's okay. Jesus had a season, Jesus had a season of waiting for himself. It's time. It's time. John 12. We're going to be spending most of our time tonight in this chapter. Verse 1. Six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. We just fast-forwarded three years. Jesus comes onto the scene at 30. He comes out of hiding. He comes out of the shadows, Savior of the world on the scene. He's been ministering for three long years. He has six more days. See, when John is saying six days before the Passover, he's not just saying six days before a Passover because he knows the end of the story. He knows this is Jesus' final Passover. He knows this is the Passover of the crucifixion. Part of what Jesus is trying to, what part of what the Holy Spirit is trying to inspire John to communicate to us is that Jesus is at the end of his days. At the end of his days, and even then, at the end of his days, as he looks back over those last three years, I don't think he has one regret. He does not have one regret on how he engaged in the battle that showed the universe that sin and death can be conquered, that there is victory that can be had, and even when it seems all hope is lost. I think when you see Jesus in these final six days, it's important that we do not see him in a hurry. We don't see him trying to right wrongs because he lived a perfect life. In, in John 12, we don't see Jesus, even though we're told it's his final six days, as though he's frazzled because he doesn't have much time left. We know that's the case because he understands two things. He lived well with the time that he had been given and that eternity was waiting for him, just like it will be for us. He fought the biggest battle the universe had ever seen, and yet he never broke the rules. Even though he was fighting evil, he never became evil to defeat it. And I believe, as you're going to see tonight, as we look into John 12, 
that the Holy Spirit is inspiring the gospel writer to give us three things, three lines that we must never cross as we ourselves engage in this fight against racism in our world. I'm going to give you three questions to ask yourself tonight. The first one is this. Am I adding to people's reasons to not believe in Jesus and his church? Am I adding to people's reasons to not believe in Jesus and his church? Listen to John 12, 37. But despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most of the people still did not believe in him. It doesn't say some of the people didn't believe. It didn't say a few of the people. It said most. You ever seen that verse in the Bible? It's incredible, isn't it? I think sometimes we forget, even though thousands of people came to see him and hear him, it was still just a small few that believed in him. And he lived a perfect life. The miracles that he performed, the wisdom that flowed from him as he taught, still even that wasn't enough for people to believe. This is important for us because I think it's a reminder that no matter what we do, Even if we get it all right, as his followers and as the church, there will still be people who choose not to believe. But what I would add to that is woe to us if their unbelief is because of us. Woe to us if for the reason they say, I cannot believe in him, I cannot believe in his message, I cannot get behind his work, is because of fill in the blank and it's our name because of the example that we gave. Listen to Titus 1.16. Such people claim they know God, but they deny him by the way they live. Listen, listen, you got to love Paul, right? He's not pulling any punches. They are detestable, disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. We cannot as we engage in the fight against injustice in society, we cannot, as we begin to speak out and stand against racism in society, let it be that we would never be the people that Paul spoke of, of Titus, that we claim to know God, but by our actions we denied him. I wrote a blog this week, Is Trump God's Man? I hope you read it. You can get the blogs that I write on our discipleship website, letspraxis.com. You can also get to that website through citylifeva.com. And I introduced this idea there in the blog, this, this, this concept which, which I call a moral high ground false summit. Now, if you're familiar with the term of false summit, it's, it's when you get to a, a peak, if you're, if you're hiking, and then you think you're getting to the top of the mountain, but once you get up there, you realize there's another mountain that was behind it that was obscured from you because of your angle, and it's going to take a lot more to get to the highest place you need to go to. A false summit, a false peak it's called, geographically. Now this happens to us in life, if I could use this analogy. Let's say person A accuses person B of having having done something to them in the past. And person B knows that they're guilty. But they believe that person A's motivation... For, for, for making it public is less than noble. Let's say they believe it's just for sheer spite. Then in that instance, what happens in person B's heart, we see it all the time, especially in politics, is they believe they have the moral high ground even though they're guilty because of the person's motives. And so they feel justified in lying about what they had done. It's a moral high ground false summit. A moral high ground false summit is when you feel justified to break the rules because someone is treating you poorly. Moral high ground. 
false summit. You and I in our battle against injustice, you and I in our fight against racism, we must never break the rules to write the rules. We must not. We must be willing to hike as long as it takes, as arduous as it might be, to get on the true moral high ground of the character of Christ. His example to us is that you can win, you can overcome evil, but don't become evil along the way. Matthew 18, 6 reads this way, If you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone, which if you're not familiar with that, it would be the biggest rock you've ever seen in your life, tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus is saying to you and to me, woe to you if they don't believe because of you. Am I adding to people's reasons to not believe in Jesus and his church? Number two, am I causing people to hide who know something about Jesus that others need to know? Let me read that again. Am I causing people to hide who know something about Jesus that others need to know? Silence is more contagious than the coronavirus itself. One of the ways that I celebrated Memorial Day weekend is I, I rewatched the HBO series Band of Brothers. If you've never seen it, it's adult. Just giving you a little, it's not a family show. And then I, I watched the, that, that following week, the classic movie, The Battle of the Bulge. I love that movie. Both of those movies touch on something, though, that is heartbreaking. And that's the Holocaust. Five million ethnic minorities. Five million in addition to the 6 million Jews, were murdered in just a few short years. That's 11 million people. Let me, just, let, me, let me just put that in perspective. The population of New York City, 8 million. The population of New Jersey, 9 million. The population of L.A. and California, 4 million. It's almost the equivalent as if you were to take every human being out of L.A., murder them, repopulate it, murder them again, repopulate it, murder them again. That's what happened in the Holocaust. 11 million people. Now, there were many reasons why this tragedy happened in society, but I am convinced one of the greatest reasons is because too many Christians remain silent when they had an opportunity to say, this is not the Jesus that we know. I'm not talking about at the point they were leading people into the concentration camps because it was too late then. I'm talking about years before as a nation, when people, even in churches, begin to talk about this idea of a superior race, where were the other people besides Diedrich Bonhoeffer who were willing to stand up and say, this is not Jesus? The church must not lose its voice. Early on, before society loses its collective conscience, Matthew 7, 21 to 23, these are sobering words, people. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform miracles in your name. But listen to what Jesus says. But I will reply, I never knew you. 
Get away from me, you who break God's laws. You see, there's a lot of people that aren't going to believe. Woe to us if they don't believe because of us. There are also going to be a lot of people who think they believe and are going to stand before Jesus on the day of judgment and think that the Christ they represented in the world was the Christ that they're coming to meet and are going to hear him say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Woe to us. Woe to us if the Jesus that they've been following their whole life is the wrong Jesus because it's the Jesus that we gave to them. Am I adding to people's reasons to not believe in Jesus and his church? Am I causing people to hide who know something about Jesus that others need to know? I shared this on social media this week. I'll give you it again. Looting isn't just in stores and buildings, people. When we refuse to stand up for people who are being marginalized and disenfranchised, we are looting the moral warehouse of our collective societal conscience. And at some point, at some point, the warehouse becomes so empty that people find permission to commit atrocities. Number three. Am I forgetting what's at stake? Am I adding to people's reasons to not believe in Jesus and his church? Am I causing people to hide who know something about Jesus that others need to know? Am I forgetting what's at stake? Revelation 20, 15. Do you have a reservation? Anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. See, Christianity is both inclusive and exclusive all at the same time. It's inclusive in the sense that Jesus says, whosoever, you you may come. It's exclusive, though. It's only those who do come may enter in. If this idea of sin and judgment and consequence is new for you, I want to encourage you to buy this, even if you're not a reader. Look, come on. If you're watching online, right here, it's thin. What is the gospel by Greg Gilbert? It's an incredible read. In fact, when I was writing this message this week, I thought I had a copy of this and I was rummaging through my office and I couldn't find it. And and so I, I remembered Pastor Justin has a copy in his office, so he wasn't in the office that day. So I was like, I'm going to steal his copy, right? And then when I stole it from his office, I realized he had actually stolen it from my office because my name was right there. I know. No, So I'm both confessing and calling to account at the same time, which that's what this book is really talking about. What is the gospel? We all need a savior. You see, when we, when we started with John 12, 1, and it talks about six days, six days isn't just talking about the brevity of life. Six days isn't just talking about one day we're going to be at the end and have to reflect, and will we regret, will we be in a hurry trying to make up for lost time, six days is also talking about the seventh day. See, when the Holy Spirit inspired the gospel writer to say six days, it's not just a historical marker so that we would understand that the idea of the historicity of Scripture is true, meaning that the Bible is a reliable historical document. It's also prophetic. Six days is saying to us, there's, at some point, we're going to come to the end. 
But in talking about six days, he's also talking about the seventh day, which looking back to creation, we understand is the Sabbath, and that when Jesus died on the cross for the remission of sin, he made possible for the ultimate spiritual Sabbath. That one day when we breathe our last, if we've made a vow of devotion to him, that we can enter into an eternal rest. I'm going to invite you to bow your head with me here in the sanctuary. If you're at home watching, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes too. If you're in a living room somewhere with a group of people, come on, set the example. Just bow your head and close your eyes. I just want to create a moment of privacy for you. As you look back onto the story of your life, can you find a moment in time where you've made a vow of devotion to Christ? If you're watching from home, if you're watching this five years from now, as you look back on your life, can you find a moment in time where you've made a vow of devotion to Christ? If you can't find a moment like that, I'm just going to ask you to slip your hand up right where you are. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. I'm not going to ask you to go anywhere or do anything. Again, if you're watching online, I'm not going to ask you to go anywhere or do anything. Just slip your hand up right where you are. Because there's a consequence. You see, you and I can't earn the salvation that Jesus offers, but we do have to accept it. We do have to accept it. And making a vow of devotion to him is simply just a matter of saying to him, Jesus, my life belongs to you from this day forward. I make a vow. I make a sacred, solemn promise that my life belongs to you. And that you would say, Jesus, I believe that you are God's son. I believe that you died for my sin. I believe that you rose from the dead. I believe that you were inviting me to one day be with you in heaven for all eternity. If you're watching online right now, there's going to be something that pops up onto the screen and you're going to be able to select that and ask for prayer. You're going to be able to select that. Raise your hand on the online campus and say you want to make a vow of devotion to Christ. One of our staff, one of our pastors is going to be there to pray with you, to talk with you, to give you some next steps. Father, I pray for every person that's in this room right now. I pray for every person that's online right now. We know that following after you is a lifetime of steps, but for each of us, for each of us, there was always that first step. And I pray that someone would take that first step today. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, amen. As you came in, there was a table in the foyer. If you're part of our online campus, I hope that because it's the first Saturday of the month, you remember to gather some communion elements, just some bread and some juice that you probably have just there in your house. There's nothing sacred about the kind of juice or the kind of bread. Just gather some elements for you and your family. If you did if you're here right now live and you don't have one of these, just feel free to hop up, run to the back. They're at the table there for you. Let me give you a little, which we, we joked about, we probably need to do a YouTube instructional video just how to open these things. It, it, it takes a little bit of effort. There's, there's a little layer of thin cellophane right on the top that separates the wafer from the juice. You can just open that and pull that wafer aside without opening up the juice container. And then you can peel back that tab 
go and get that juice. John 2, 17 reads this way, Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the Scriptures, Passion for God's house will consume me. You know when that verse is written? It's written chronologically right after Jesus cleansed the temple. When he got to the church of his day and realized that it wasn't what it was supposed to be and he began to bring about change. I love, I love what the disciples remembered. Passion for God's house will consume me. Are you consumed by a passion for God's house, which today is his church? You see, none of us are free to stop going to church because we didn't like what we found the last time we were there. We are obligated to be a part of making it better. We have a responsibility. If we're in his family, we're supposed to be in his house. And if his house is out of order, then God wants to use you to help make it right. You see, when he died on that cross, he died to reconcile us to God, but he most certainly, he most certainly also died to reconcile us to one another. This wafer that represents his body that was broken for us, this juice that represents his blood that was shed for the remission of sin, let's partake of it together. in the sanctuary, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. Jesus, we thank you that you paid the ultimate price for each of us so that we could be reconciled to the Father, so we could be born into your family, and so that we could be called into your church and then commissioned into your world and as we go out today celebrating the forgiveness that we've been given celebrating the life that we can know with the Father now and the hope of the seventh day that's waiting for us when we breathe our last may it be that from this day until that day that we would not lose our voice, that we would be like Jesus at 30, and that we would take a stand, that we would step up, and that we would believe just like it was for him, that in spite of the worst odds possible, there can be a victory. That good can still overcome evil. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, amen. We'll see you next week.